Welcome back, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the Egypt Travel Podcast so far and getting a lot of useful and actionable information and some travel inspiration and motivation out of these classic episodes about the fundamentals of travel to and around Egypt. Just another quick pre-roll update to this episode, which was originally recorded back in early 2018. Since the pharaohs, tombs, and temples haven't picked themselves up and walked off or changed locations or anything like that, Nearly everything in this episode remains as relevant and accurate today as it was a few years ago. But there are two quick updates I do want to add into the mix for you to know about when you're listening to this episode about Luxor's Western Bank sites. I go into great detail about the many tombs in the Valley of the Kings in this episode, including ones which are my favorites and why, and which ones require an extra ticket beyond your Kings Valley general admission ticket. The tomb of Seti I is one that I talked about in this episode that was sometimes open and sometimes not back then, but now it's definitely open all the time. However, it's now among the few tombs in the Valley of the Kings that requires an extra ticket to enter, and it's a bit pricey. As of now, in July of 2022, that extra ticket to enter Seti I's tomb costs about 60 US dollars. Now, it is a wonderful tomb, But if you don't splurge on this extra tomb, you won't be cursed by the gods. There are several other spectacular tombs in the valley too that you can get into without paying an extra 60 bucks. They're included in the price of your regular Kings Valley admission ticket. So don't worry if you think that's a bit pricey. You won't be missing too much if you don't pay that extra 60 bucks to go see it. Um, But if you do want to splurge on the extra 60 bucks, it is a phenomenal tomb. The other quick update I have for you is about the Valley of the Queens. When this episode was originally recorded, the famous Queen Nefertari's tomb, and remember that she was the famously beautiful favorite wife of Ramses II, or Ramses the Great. Her tomb in the Valley of the Queens was usually not open to the public at all in the past, but in the times when it was made available, it used to cost about a thousand US dollars for the special ticket and permit to go in to see Queen Nefertari's tomb in the Valley of the Queens. Now, it's open all the time, but it still costs $100 just for that one tomb in the Valley of the Queens. That's an extra ticket. So you go to the Valley of the Queens, you get a ticket for that. It's really cheap. And then if you want to go in Nefertari's tomb there, that will cost you an extra $100 for that ticket. It's better than $1,000 like it used to be, but still a bit pricey compared to the ticket at the Valley of the Queens generally or the Valley of the Kings where you get to go in a bunch of tombs and it only costs about 10 or 15 bucks. So is it worth it? Well, it's a smaller tomb compared to the big ones in the Valley of the Kings, but it is remarkably well-preserved with vibrant, colorful wall art, much more so than any other tomb in Luxor, in the Valley of the Kings or the Valley of the Queens. So if you have a particular fascination with Nefertari, or if you don't mind splurging on the extra 100 bucks per person to go into this tomb, then it could be worth it for you. And with those two quick updates now out there, here is the original Egypt Travel Podcast episode with everything else unchanged in Luxor, part one. Enjoy it. What is up, fellow and future Egypt travelers? You know what? Actually, we need to find a word for ourselves, something like Egyptophiles or Egyphiles. Or if you have any ideas, feel free to shoot me a note over at john at egypttravelblog.com because yes, as you know, if this isn't your first episode of the Egypt Travel Blog podcast, that I am John, your host, and this is the Egypt Travel Blog Podcast, which is the podcast of, you guessed it, EgyptTravelBlog.com. And in this episode, our eighth actually, wow, already eight meaty episodes into this series, this eighth episode 
is all about Luxor, the number two destination in Egypt right after Cairo, which is not only the modern capital, but where the world-famous pyramids are of Egypt. Well, the biggest ones anyway. And if you already listened to our two episodes dedicated to the pyramids of Giza, which are just outside of Cairo, you'll already know all about that. So now Luxor, as I said, is Egypt's number two destination for visitors who want to take in and marvel at this amazing country's amazing history. Luxor is the area I like to call the land of the tombs and temples. I call Egypt generally the land of the pharaohs, but Luxor specifically is the land of the tombs and temples. While there certainly are tombs and temples all over Egypt, Luxor is definitely where the most magnificent ones are located. Most notably in Luxor, we have the Valley of the Kings with the splendid and splendidly preserved, by the way, tombs of some of Egypt's greatest pharaohs. And we also have the greatest temple to the gods of ancient Egypt in Luxor too, which is Karnak Temple. Now there's another temple actually called Luxor Temple as well. So don't get them confused, but Karnak Temple in Luxor, just down the road, is much, much more grand. Although I certainly do recommend visiting Luxor Temple too. Don't leave that one out. But I'll get into all of that and much more soon. You all know me by now. Unless this is your first episode, in which case I'd suggest listening to a few others too. But if you know me and this podcast, then you know there's nothing I leave out. I pack in all the history and the practical stuff combined with the good, the bad, the ugly, the really ugly, the scams, the hidden gems, tips, tricks, etc. So expect this to be another meaty episode because there is a lot to cover about Luxor and a lot to see in Luxor. And who knows, this might even end up being another two-parter if it's good enough. We shall see, inshallah, as the Egyptians say, or the Arabs say, if God is willing. By the way, a quick religious and linguistic sidebar to start us off. You know the word Allah, with a capital A, just means God, with a capital G, except it's just the Arabic word for God. So people get all bent out of shape sometimes over the word Allah, or Allah, as you may hear the Arabs or Muslims pronounce it in the Arabic way. But Allah literally just means God in another language. Just like Dios or Diu with capital D's mean God in Spanish and French, respectively. I speak Spanish, but I don't speak French, so I hope I pronounced that right. Dieu? Dieu. Dios in Espanol. Anyway, I was saying, so when a Muslim prays or says praise Allah, they're literally, literally just saying praise God. And to be even more precise, they're actually talking about the exact same God as Jews and Christians talk about, what we call the God of Abraham or the God of the Old Testament. If you know anything about major religions, you know that Muslims, Christians, and Jews all worship the exact same God. They just differ drastically, but they differ on who God's chief prophet is on earth. Christians believe it's Jesus. Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet, but not the main one, which they think was Muhammad. And Jews believe he still hasn't come yet. But my main point here is primarily just a linguistic one for you. The word Allah is literally just the Arabic translation for not only the exact same English word God, with a capital G, but it's also the exact same biblical God that the Christians worship. When I was younger, and I'd visit home uh, while I was living in the Middle East, and I'd jokingly say, praise Allah, and some people would look at me and say, oh God, don't say that around here. You know, I'm a Christian, don't, don't talk about Allah, and I'd just be like, Dude, I'm literally praising the exact same God you're talking about. Allah is another language's word for the God of Abraham, your same God that you claim to be all about. 
So anyway, I digress, but I do so in order to help educate culturally curious listeners about a really important topic in the region you'll be traveling around and to that's so often misunderstood in the regions we come from. So what started that sidebar for me was the phrase, inshallah, which means if God or Allah is willing. It's a very, and I can't stress that enough, very, very common phrase you'll hear when you go to Egypt. And you might want to try using it yourself a time or two, uh, and the local people will love you for it. But just tack it onto things that you hope will come to pass while you're there, and it'll be great. Inshallah. Anyway, okay, Luxor. What an amazing place. For starters, let's talk about where the hell Luxor is. Obviously, it's clearly in Egypt, but it's quite a hike or caravan away from Cairo. Cairo is in the north of the country, not far from the Mediterranean Sea, about two hours driving inland from the Med, Cairo. Uh, Luxor is way further south in the lower part of the country, about roughly two-thirds the way down the length of the whole country, the length of Egypt. Now, let me sidebar again super quick to explain another very critical concept about Egypt that you'll want to know after you leave Cairo and start exploring Luxor down in the south. You may hear different parts of Egypt referred to as Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. And you may be tempted to assume while looking at a map that Upper Egypt is on the upper part of the map and Lower Egypt is on the lower part of the map at the bottom of the country, if you're oriented north to south. But that isn't the case, and it's actually the opposite. And that's a really important concept to understand when you're visiting Luxor and when you're talking about ancient Egyptian history. Upper Egypt is the area of Egypt in the south near Nubia and the Sudan. And Lower Egypt is the area of Egypt that lies in the north near the Mediterranean Sea. Any guesses why that is? By the way, when people doing a monologue with no live audience ask questions like that. Anywho, if you know a little bit about Egyptian history already, you may already know the answer to this little riddle. It has to do with the Nile River, the giver of life as the ancient Egyptians used to refer to it. You see, the Nile is one of the few rivers in the world that flows south to north instead of north to south. So the ancients used to orient their sense of place and direction and everything, really, according to the Nile, and in particular, its flow. Okay, so if you can imagine you're an ancient Egyptian, and you're floating down the Nile on your little boat or felucca, and you're headed downstream, you tend to think of an area downstream as the lower part of your hood, and the area that's back upstream as the upper part, right? So the upper part of ancient Egypt was located upstream along the Nile which today, with our fancy maps and satellites and iPhone GPS and everything, we know as southern Egypt. And the northern part of the country, further downstream along the Nile, was lower Egypt. So now you won't be confused later when you hear me, or your guides, or locals, or the ghosts of the pharaohs, or whoever, talking about Luxor, or Aswan, in the south of Egypt, being in upper Egypt, and Cairo and the pyramids in the far north of the country, being in lower Egypt. Got that? All right. Back to Luxor. In Remember? Upper Egypt. Right, exactly. Okay, Luxor is the modern Arabic name for the city that sits on the site of the ancient capital of the kingdom of Upper Egypt. See, Egypt used to be divided into two separate kingdoms until the pharaoh Narmer, aka Menes, came along and united the two lands under his rule around 3000 BC, so that's roughly like 5,000 years ago. In Egyptology parlance, by the way, we say he united the two crowns of Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt when he joined the two lands. And you can actually see physical evidence of this in the Egyptian museum. If you look for the statues of pharaohs that have a crown that looks like a little seat, that's the red crown of lower Egypt. And others, uh, other statues of pharaohs have a crown that looks like an elongated orb cone, which was the white crown of upper Egypt. And then after Egypt's unification, 
the pharaohs in the statuary are depicted wearing a combined seed and cone crown. You'll see lots of examples of this on statues and in the wall art and the tombs and temples when you're in Egypt, and you'll recognize what I'm talking about when you see it, but you'll remember me talking about that, and you'll recognize it. So keep that in mind. So Luxor was the capital of Upper Egypt before unification, and it became the capital of the United Egyptian Empire for nearly a thousand years during the height of ancient Egypt's power. But like I said earlier, Luxor is the Arabic name for the ancient city that it acquired after the Arabs invaded and settled much later. In ancient Egyptian times, the capital here was known by several names like Waset or Nawe or Taope, none of which really um, we really hear anymore because most ancient Egyptian names for people and places have been replaced by the names later given to them by their conquerors. Capital Waset was later named, renamed Thebes by the Greeks. And as we've established later yet, Luxor by the Arabs, which is, of course, what we still call the city today. But during its heyday, Luxor was seriously a capital of immense wealth and extravagance. Like, I can't even begin to convey the level of wealth that ancient Egypt and and Luxor in particular as its capital possessed and was on display. Some of Egypt's greatest and richest kings made their homes here and ruled from here. And they showered the city and its surrounding area with lavish building projects of monuments and temples and so on. And many of them had themselves and their families buried here too in elaborate secret tombs fit for the god-king status that they bestowed upon themselves. Most of these ancient temples and palaces have, of course, been destroyed over the past several thousand years. But lucky for us, and almost incredibly, given how much time's passed and how much conflict and, and just history has evolved on that same territory, some of them have survived and are intact today for us to visit and walk through and experience um, and and see what the splendor of ancient Egypt was actually like. So let's move on now and talk about what's left in Luxor for you to see on a visit there today in this day and age. And actually, while Cairo has some more famous ancient monuments like the Pyramids of Giza, there's much, much, much more to see in Luxor than up in Giza. Okay, first, The most famous spot in Luxor is the Valley of the Kings. This area is on the western bank of the Nile River down in Luxor, so across the river from the actual city of Luxor. And it's where the Egyptians buried about 500 years or so worth of pharaohs, primarily from the New Kingdom period, but about five centuries worth of uh, ruling dudes and ruling dudettes too, a few. We'll talk about that. If you hire a car and driver in Luxor, by the way, you'll have about a 20-minute drive south of the city. Remember how I said Valley of the Kings is on the, other, on the opposite bank directly across from the city of Luxor? But if you hire a car, you'll have to drive about 20 minutes south of the city to get to the nearest bridge to cross over the Nile, and then about 20 minutes back up the Nile on the other side to get back to your starting point right across from the town of Luxor on the western bank, and then another 10 minutes further north to get to the Valley of the Kings site. It's nice to have a car and driver for a day in Luxor, especially if you're trying to cram in a lot into one day. But if you do go on your own, you'll still honestly be a little bit at a, uh, of a loss just because, like the Egyptian Museum, so much of what there is to know about what you're looking at and walking through in the sites in Luxor isn't labeled, and you'll miss, honestly, probably 90% of it if you don't have someone knowledgeable with you to share that experience with you. Okay, when you arrive at the Valley of the Kings, at the gates to the Valley of the Kings, you'll have to walk up to the entrance choke point where the ticket office is. Okay, your car can drop you off in the parking lot right outside the gates, but you have to walk up to the entrance choke point where the ticket office is. It's consistently about 10 US dollars, give or take a little bit, to enter the Valley Complex, and that's been for about the past 10 years or so. It could fluctuate a few dollars higher every few years, but 
Expected to be somewhere in that range, about 10 US dollars ish. Now, there are a few special tombs inside of the Valley Complex that require an extra ticket to enter. So, your general admission ticket to the Valley of the Kings Complex will get you into three tombs. And then you'll need to buy the extra ticket if you want to see the Tomb of King Tut, which is usually about $15 more, 10 for the general admission ticket to the site, which gets you three tombs. $15 more for the King Tut tomb ticket. And then there's one other tomb too that we'll talk about later that is an extra ticket that eh, you can take it or leave it. Now, $15 for King Tut's tomb alone might seem like a lot when compared to the price of 10 bucks for the general admission to the whole valley. But honestly, think about it this way. This is how I always think about these things. You've spent thousands of dollars and come all the way to Egypt, halfway around the world for most of us. And I think it's really worth it to just shell out the extra 15 bucks to get to see King Tut's actual tomb as well. It's not big or elaborate like most of the others you'll see, but it's just neat to know you've actually been inside of King Tut's tomb, and it'll really bring to life the story you've heard about how his his tomb carving and his burial were rushed and not well planned because he died unexpectedly so young, which is precisely what led to the survival of his tomb over thousands of years with sneaky snake grave robbers and plunderers, you know, doing their thing around the Valley of the Kings looking for treasures, which is why we have all of his treasures today and know of him as the most famous pharaoh in Egyptian history, despite him being actually one of the weakest and most politically insignificant at the time. But anyway, being in the tomb and being able to see the physical manifestations of the elements of this story, I, I just think is really neat and really worth the extra, you know, 15 bucks, which is, you know, like half of a Soul Cycle class cost for one day these days. So I think it's worth it. Okay. Another neat thing about paying for the extra ticket to go inside of Tut's tomb is you get to see his real mummy in there. Remember how in the episodes on the Egyptian Museum I said that most of the contents of King Tut's tomb were on display at the museum in Cairo, except Tut's actual mummy itself? Well, that's because Tut's body was allowed to remain resting in his tomb down in Luxor, where it remains today, and where you can still go in and see it today. So that's in there too, you know, also making it worth the extra 15 bucks to go inside of his tomb. Most of the other tombs in the Valley of the Kings that are currently open, and they rotate, which are open and closed from time to time for various reasons, by the way, but most of the others you can get in and see with just your general admission ticket. Remember I said that the one $10 ticket will get you into three tombs because they want to keep the flow of tourists going and not have, you know, zillions of people spending all day there going into every single tomb and clogging up the place. Oh, one other thing I just thought of, by the way, there is one more tomb. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but I forgot to mention it. The one more tomb that requires an extra ticket when it's open is the tomb of Ramses VI. It's not the biggest, but the wall art in it is incredibly well-preserved for having been known and open, the tomb being open since antiquity. You think about all the, you know, the grave robbers obviously went in there and cleaned it out, but, you know, all the people traipsing in and out for thousands of years. But it's really up to you as to whether or not it's worth it to get the extra ticket for this one, too. You know, if you want to spend more time in the valley and don't mind a few extra bucks, that can be worth it. But Honestly, you won't have missed out on anything major if you don't go inside this one, Ramses VI tomb, as long as you still get in your other three plus Tut's tomb if you're doing that one too. All right, so you'll just want to scope out three of the included tombs in the valley in advance of your trip there and plan your time there according to your research for which tombs you want to see. And there are a couple of variables we'll talk about that can help you kind of plan that. It's usually best to walk all the way to the back of the valley, by the way, to start when you get there, and then work your way back forward towards the entrance, which is also the exit. King Tut's tomb, by the way, is near the beginning, so I usually like to pop into it last or next to last, but let me actually just now share, I've got a couple notes on a couple of my favorite tombs that I've made over the years, 
and why you may want to make your own list of three before you go, like I said, just sort of based on what you want to see in them and your own physical abilities and you know what you want to do while you're in there. There's a couple of different variables to consider in terms of which tombs of the three on your general admission ticket you want to, to knock out of the many that will be open. And the tombs, by the way, we refer to as KV, so King's Valley, and the number of the order in which they were chronicled, and then later in the higher numbers discovered, which was more recently. So anyway, okay, back to the list of tombs that I would recommend you consider based on a couple of variables I'll talk about with each one. So KV-11 is the first one. KV-11 is it's one of the larger tombs. It's got really bright colors covering the walls and a huge red granite sarcophagus in the main burial chamber. And one thing I love about this tomb is that the tomb builders actually broke through an older tomb when they were starting to dig uh, and build this tomb. So you can see as you're going down into the tomb where they said, uh-oh, and you know, patched over the hole where they broke into the other tomb, and then later hung a right and kept digging. But this tomb was actually originally started for a pharaoh called Setnakte, who was the father of Ramses III, but when they messed up and uh, they messed up the building of it and broke into that other tomb when they were digging the hole and they abandoned it, they uh, built his tomb actually in another spot. But his son, Ramses III, is the one who had the builders hang the right at the breakthrough spot and keep digging to create his tomb. So KB11 ended up actually being the tomb of Ramses III. And I just kind of like that you see, you know, they kind of didn't really know, they obviously didn't have uh, detection equipment back then, and they you know, kind of didn't know where 100 years or 200 years prior people had dug previous tombs because they were supposed to be hidden. Most of them still were at that point. But you know, they sometimes would just dig where they thought there was no tomb, and then, uh-oh, they hit, a, they hit a, another tomb. KV-11, they patched over it, and then later Ramses III was like, oh, I'll take that tomb. So they hung a right and then kept building his tomb. So I think that's neat to see. That's one of my favorite things about KV-11. Okay, KV-16 is the tomb of Ramses I. Now, he died before it was finished, kind of like King Tut did with his tomb, but uh, Ramses I died, and they were still working on the tomb, so they had to finish it quickly, you know, to go with what they had. So it's rather simple and small, which means it's also an easy one to do. It's a really beautifully decorated tomb inside, and that's actually something to consider in the Valley of the Kings, by the way, accessibility. If you or someone you're with has trouble climbing steps, Some of the tombs, by the way, have steep steps down into them and then back up, and some require a little bit of a hike to get up to the entrances to begin with. But the good news is that there are several, like KV-16, that are both easy to get to and easy to go down into as well. And this one, which is the tomb of Ramses I, is one to put on that list. Easy accessibility. Okay, KV-17 is the tomb of Seti I. And it's probably the biggest and best tomb to see in the valley if it's open at the time you're there. It's not always open, but if it is, that's one to see if, if you don't mind uh, crawling down into it. Seti I's sarcophagus was removed from the tomb actually in 1824 by the British and is now supposedly on display at a museum in London called the Sir John Soane Museum, but I've never been there to see it. But allegedly, that's where the sarcophagus from this tomb was carted off to. And remember the guy named Jean-Francois Champollion, by the way? The Frenchman who succeeded in finally cracking the hieroglyphics with a Rosetta Stone. Talked about him in a previous episode. He also jacked a huge chunk of one of the walls in Seti the First Tomb, and those chunks are on display now in the Louvre in Paris. So anyway, KV-17 has not only huge interior and beautiful decorations, but in it, 
you kind of get a real life feeling of the theme I was talking about earlier in the series of these European aristocrats and explorers kind of just wholesale carting off huge chunks, literally, of Egypt's history and taking them back to Europe. But, you know, at least they're on display now in museums in London and Paris and Berlin and Vienna and elsewhere. But you really get to see that theme come to life in KB 17, the tomb of Seti I. Okay, back to the valley. So KB 34. That's another neat one, too. It's the tomb of Tutmose III, and it's all the way toward the back of the valley. So you'll want to perhaps start with this one if you want to include this one on your list. But be warned, this one has a lot of steps outside to get up to the entrance to it. And then it descends pretty far back down into the mountain once you're inside. So if accessibility is a key factor for you in picking out which tombs to go into and you don't want to exert a lot or perhaps you're a little older and don't want to sweat a lot or you can't get up and down stairs very well, that's something to think about and this might not be one for you. But if you want to you know, burn those calories and have a good hike up and down, KB34 is a neat one for you to put on your list too. The benefit of it being a little bit less easily accessible is that even on crowded days, it's usually less busy for that exact reason. A lot of people don't want to do the little mini hike up the stairs and then back down into the tomb pretty steep and back up the tomb stairs and then back down the exterior stairs uh, to go see this one. So that's another thing to think about, too. If you don't mind a little hike, then even if it's crowded, KV-34 will be probably one of the less crowded tombs on those days. Tutmose III. KB35, by the way, is that's a really neat one too, I think, because of the story behind its significance beyond just the tomb of Amenhotep II. This tomb actually remained undiscovered until 1898. So the pharaoh, Amenhotep II, was still in his original sarcophagus when the tomb was opened then. But what's really strange is that a whole bunch of other mummies were also found and stuffed into his tomb in a side chamber. Now, remember back in ancient days, known tombs were looted all the time, like I've talked about. You know, if they're open since antiquity, grave robbers and sneaky snakes were going in there and plundering. And often the mummies of the pharaohs would be damaged as well as, you know, the gold carted off. But the mummies would be hacked into by the robbers because they were looking for gold and jewelry that was wrapped into the, the cloths and wrappings on the actual bodies of the pharaohs. So the grave robbers would, you know, take axes and things and hack open the mummies and really destroy the bodies. So finally, the high priests were getting uh, so fed up with this and freaked out about it because they're destroying the, you know, the, the body of the pharaoh and ruining his existence in the afterlife. They got enough freak, uh, freaked out enough about it that they went into a good number of tombs themselves, broke into the tombs, and took out the pharaoh's mummies in a lot of tombs and hid them all in a secret room in Amenhotep II's tomb which is evidently a good idea since his tomb, uh, the location of it, remained a secret until almost the turn of the 20th century. It was obviously a good hiding place, so they picked a good one to hide all the pharaohs in that they were trying to hide from all the grave robbers. So thanks to these smart-thinking high priest dudes, we still have the actual mummies today intact of some of Egypt's greatest pharaohs because their secret hiding place, like I said, inside of Amenhotep II's tomb was just really, really, really good, as it turns out. Okay, so those are a couple of the tombs inside the Valley of the Kings that I personally like and others tend to, to like as well based on feedback. But honestly, there's no definitive list of must-see tombs that you've got to worry about discovering lest you miss something. Even, seriously, the least spectacular of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings are still wonderful to get to see. They have great stories behind them. They really manifest important elements of some of the things I've been trying to explain in terms of uh, you know themes of ancient Egyptian history and their connection to the modern world, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. So you really can't go wrong once you're in there. Just like I said, it's just a matter of finding out which aspects of these particular tombs that you want to focus on 
and selecting along those variables, whether it's ease and accessibility or wall art or, you know, the most number of rooms inside the tomb or a favorite pharaoh or a neat story or what have you. They're all awesome. Now, you know how I keep saying that all of Egypt is still an active archaeological site and that, you know, new discoveries are being still made all the time? Well, nowhere else is that more true than in Luxor, and especially in the Valley of the Kings. You know, I've mentioned many of the tomb locations have been known since antiquity, meaning they were discovered and robbed thousands of years ago, but many more were actually discovered much more recently. You know, we just talked about Amenhotep II's tomb, which was discovered in 1898, and you probably know now that King Tut's tomb in the Valley of the Kings was discovered in 1922 by Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon, with all of his treasure still inside, along with his mummified body. But honestly, archaeologists are still discovering and excavating tombs in the Valley of the Kings up to the present day. When you visit, there will still be discoveries being theorized about and made and active archaeological digs going on at some of these new tomb discoveries, even while you're there. You'll see sections of the valley roped off for that. Uh, Back in 2005, by the way, they found a chamber that became known as KV-64, which they didn't even get to enter and start exploring until 2011. And another tomb that became KV-65 was discovered in 2008, and it's still being excavated and studied. So it's almost certain that there are many more tombs of Egypt's many, many more lost pharaohs that remain undiscovered under the very ground that you will be walking on when you visit Luxor, which is honestly such a thrilling, thrilling thing to think about when you're there. And by the way, another thrilling thing to think about when you're at the Valley of the Kings is water. I'm not even kidding. It gets hot AF there, if you know what I mean. Even when Cairo is much cooler in the winter months, Luxor is still hot AF, and especially, especially in July and August. You can really seriously become overheated fast walking around the valley, you know, going from tomb to tomb, climbing up and down steps outside, climbing up and down, um, you know, interior steps and things like that, even if it's just for an hour or so. So please make sure you take or buy a huge bottle of water when you're there and gulp it down before and during your visit throughout the Valley of the Kings, okay? In fact, just keep constantly gulping bottled water while you're in Egypt just to make sure you don't get dehydrated and you have to interrupt your trip. That would suck. You've come a long way and you've come really far, uh, too far not to be able to see what you came there to see. I've actually had a, a few guests with me in Luxor over the years that have ignored my pleadings and my advice on drinking lots of water and they've ended up feeling sick at major sites and then they, you know, they want to go back to the van or to the hotel to lay down and feel better. And they end up missing a really important site that they came thousands of miles and waited a lifetime to see. So take care of your body, too, while you're there. And uh, all right, daddy time's done. I'll get back to the sites. So after you finish up the Valley of the Kings, you'll be on what we call the west bank of the Nile, like I talked about earlier, the western bank or the western side of the Nile River. And by the way, when I first went to Luxor, you'd see signs and advertisements for tours of the west bank. And I was like, You know, why would anybody want to go tour the West Bank, especially from way down here? It's really far away from the West Bank. You know, it just seems like an odd thing to be advertising to people while they're down in Luxor in a different country. You know, and then a few days later, a light bulb went off in my head, and I realized they were talking about the West Bank of the Nile, like West Bank with a small W and a small B, not the West Bank of the Jordan River, the one with the capital W and capital B and lots of other issues. Anyway, my youthful idiocy aside, You'll know this stuff already because you are smart enough to be listening to this podcast before you go. So you'll already be on the West Bank uh, when you are visiting the Valley of the Kings, which is where a few of the other key sites are as well. Next one is you definitely do not want to miss 
Hapshetsut's temple. And it's also easy to stop by the Colossi of Memnon too while you're there. If you're spending, we'll talk about those more in a second, but I just want to tell you real quick, if you're spending more than one day in Luxor and you really want to see more tombs, there's also a Valley of the Queens over on the western bank of the Nile. And there's also a worker's village that's neat to see. But before we talk about those, let me back up first and talk about the two I just mentioned as must-see sites, even if you only have a half day, one day in Luxor. The first of which is Queen Hepshetsut's temple, her mortuary temple on the other side of the mountain from the Valley of the Kings. Okay, Queen Hepshetsut, she was a bad mamma-jamma, as Trina would say, but in a good way. Well, unless you're her stepson, then maybe you disagree. But Today, we see Hepshetsut as an ancient diva and perhaps even one of the world's, or the world's, first drag queen or king or whatever. But Hepshetsut was a really remarkable woman in antiquity, seriously. And she rose from being one of the pharaoh's wives to crossing or even breaking the gender divide that kept nearly all women, except for just one known example before her, but for the most part, nearly all women from being pharaohs, rulers of ancient Egypt, and for reigning for a long time as pharaoh and ruler of Egypt in her own right. Actually, she was already royal when she was born. She was born a princess because she was the child of the I. But here's the funny thing. So was the II, the child of the I, which is who Hepshetsut was married to. He was her half-brother, which meant her husband was literally her brother by another mother. No kidding, you can't make this stuff up. See, the problem was Hepshetsut did not have a son for Tutmose II. Another wife did. And that son became Tutmose III. But Hepshetsut was still the chief wife of Tutmose II. And Tutmose III's mother was a lesser wife. So Hepshetsut was still the queen bee, so to speak. So... When Hapshetsut's brother husband died, and it was time for her young nephew slash stepson to ascend to the throne, Hapshetsut actually stepped in, no pun intended, she stepped in to rule as his regent until he was of age to become a full pharaoh on his own. However, and I love just the twists and turns of ancient, Egyptians, ancient Egyptian history, uh, however, before Tutmose III could grow up and take over as pharaoh, Hepshetsut had him sent away and pushed aside, and she made herself pharaoh instead. Now, because a woman absolute ruler was so rare in those days, not unheard of, but very rare, Hepshetsut felt like she had to do things like dressing and having herself depicted in a statuary as a man in order to shore up the support of the nobles and high priests in ancient Egypt. She was even known to wear one of those long, uh, wear a false beard, you know, one of those long beards that you see on the pharaohs um, in a lot of the statues, which actually looks funny on her statues that survived today because they also depict her, you know, soft feminine facial features and curvy hips. But she has, you know, the man's beard, which she actually wore in real life was as a false, you know, kind of, I don't know if it was paste on or strap on beard or whatever, but we know that about Hatshetsu, and that's part of how she, you know, dressing as a man and really functioning as a man was how she consolidated her power as pharaoh and became that bad mamma we still know today. So, anyway, that's why I said Hatshetsu was one of the was the world's first drag king or queen, depending on how you look at it. And man, was she fierce! Like seriously, she is actually regarded by historians as a really successful monarch in the grand scheme of things of Egyptian history, to be honest. And, you know, she ruled for a couple decades before she died, and her stepson that she displaced, Tutmose III, came back into the picture to claim the throne and rule Egypt in his own right. So get this, to get back at his evil-slash-fierce stepmother, 
he ordered that his people, when he became Pharaoh, go out and destroy all traces of Hepshatsu. He was pissed. Luckily for us, you know, said henchmen were a little lazy and they didn't quite manage to erase all traces of Hepshatsu, but they did do a lot of smashing of her faces and statues and temples and stuff. But one temple that survived and didn't get totally destroyed was today what we call or know as Hepshatsu's Mortuary Temple near the Valley of the Kings. That's what I was getting at in this whole story. It's really a spectacular monument, but it's also very striking to look at from a distance. And it's really neat to explore up close, too. It's got multiple levels that you can climb on. You know, it's got like a long central running staircase up the middle of it and wide multi-story colonnades all built coming out of the side of this dramatic cliff face. It's really remarkable. And you'll know what I'm talking about when you see it, or even if you see pictures of it, but especially when you see it in person. And actually, you know what? It was her Hepshetsut choosing this site for her mortuary temple that later led pharaohs to begin digging their tombs around the corner in what became the Valley of the Kings. Hepshatsut was a trendsetter in more ways than we know. And like I said, by the way, if you have a hard time remembering the name Hepshatsut, there's an easy way to never forget it. All right, you ready? Just think of hot chicken soup. Kind of sounds like Hepshatsut, hot chicken soup. So now you'll never forget Queen Hot Chicken Soup and her incredible story. Actually, after you see her mortuary temple in Luxor, you'll never forget her either, I promise you. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, the western bank of the Nile, not the contentious west bank, because Luxor's west bank is quite peaceful and pleasant. The Nile's western bank in Luxor also hosts an area, like I mentioned earlier, known as the Valley of the Queens, which contains about another 80 or so tombs of queens and princesses from roughly the same period as the pharaohs that are buried in the Valley of the Kings nearby. There were some queens, by the way, actually buried in the Valley of the Kings, but for the most part, the women were buried over there in the Valley of the Queens and in a few other surrounding areas. I'm not going to spend too much time on this site as I did on the previous two, Valley of the Kings and Hepshatsu's Mortuary Temple, because those are the primary two that you have to see on the west bank of the Nile in Luxor. And you can do them both in a half day, by the way. But I'll tell you that you should do the Valley of the Queens if you didn't get enough tombs and temples and or tombs and ancient wall art at the Valley of the Kings and you want to see more. Or if you want to see the difference between what the tombs of the kings were like and the tombs they had built for their queens, hint, hint, they're not quite as grand. Or, you know, if you just have more time in Luxor to kill and you just really want to see more sites, then Valley of the Queens is one that you can put on your list to uh, get in more of that thing on the West Bank. Okay, and there's another site, too, I want to mention. A similar commentary can be said about a site called the Workers' Village, which is nearby this whole area as well. But unlike the royal tombs of the Valley of the Kings and Queens, the Workers' Village ruins are actually quite different, and they give you a sense of what ordinary and everyday life was like for the laborers who were the subject of the pharaohs and enlisted to build the tombs and temples. These folks included, you know, not only the manual laborers who were carrying the stones and digging out the dirt, but the sculptors and the painters and the engineers and the architects and so on. And actually, now I think about it, I would personally prioritize seeing the Workers' Village over the Valley of the Queens if you have to choose between the two after seeing the Valley of the Kings and Hepshetsut Temple. But at the Workers' Village, I mean, it's something other than just more royal tombs and more elaborate royal art. I mean, you're seeing how the artisans and craftspeople and ordinary builders, ordinary Egyptians back then, lived and what they made for themselves. And, you know, you really get a sense of elite royal life on one side and then commoner, you know, worker, craftsman, artisan life uh, at the worker's village. So eh, just my thoughts on that. Okay. Now there's one more site on the West Bank that you can see, and you can actually squeeze this one in, even if you're in a crunch for time. So the Valley of the Kings and Hepshetsut's Temple, definitely. Worker's Village, then Valley of the Queens, if you have more time and really want to see more over there. 
and aren't, you know, ruined out yet. But even if you don't have time for those two, then the Colossi of Memnon is another site on the West Bank that you can see, even if you're in a crunch for time, because these ruins are actually on the side of the road, and you'll probably pass them anyway in route to the Valley of the Kings. So it's really not out of the way to just pull over real quick and check them out, even if you're in a rush. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Colossi of Memnon. Strangely enough, you know, these ginormous statues are called the Colossi of Memnon for a bizarre reason, because, you know, Memnon was not even an ancient Egyptian. He was actually an Ethiopian king who had some connection to the Trojan War and, you know, the way up in Greece and Turkey and all that stuff. But them being named after him had something to do with the fact that one of the statues whistled every morning at dawn, which I guess some people thought reminded them of King Memnon of Ethiopia because legend says something along the lines of he cried out when he was slain by Achilles at Troy, you know, in the Trojan War. And so I assume this was the Greeks actually that renamed these statues Colossae of Memnon too, and it just stuck. But they're really statues of the Pharaoh Amenhotep III, which stood at the entrance to his even more ginormous mortuary temple where he was worshipped as a god king back in the day. Okay, so that whistling sound I mentioned, by the way, that's the funny story here about the Colossi of Memnon. So there was an earthquake in Luxor in 27 BC, and it cracked these statues that were, you know, left over at the ruins of this temple for Amenhotep III, and, you know, it caused their partial collapse. But what remained of one of them evidently started to sing, and I'm doing air quotes here, after that earthquake. And it was always in the early morning when they would sing or whistle while the sun was rising. So for nearly 2,000 years, locals and visitors to Luxor who had come across the, uh, stat- the Colossi of Memnon, they thought that the statues were magical or haunted or something like that because they would sing or cry out every single morning. Then, in the modern era, when they tried to reconstruct the damaged portion of the Colossi, and they filled in the cracks while putting the pieces back together and gluing them back together with cement and stuff, the singing that had been going on for thousands of years suddenly stopped. Weird, huh? Okay, it turned out to be that the noise, the singing, was made every morning by dew or moisture collecting inside the statue overnight through its many cracks. And then the steam would make a whistling sound later in the morning as the sun rose and heated up that trapped water so that it could escape back through the same cracks as a gas. Made a singing or whistling sound as it was escaping. Actually, you know, I think it's pretty neat to think about. I mean, if we hadn't figured that out, we probably have just thought that these ancients were crazy or something, talking about these, you know, mysterious singing, whistling statues crying out in the early morning. But we actually know that was true, and we know now what made that happen. They really did sing for thousands of years, but we know exactly why now, because it was the gases heating up and escaping with the sun you know, rising in the morning, and, and Luxor getting hot as all get out, like it always does. But, you know, you have to wonder how many more ancient stories and mysteries like that had simple explanations, too, that we don't even know about yet, and we, you know, just think, oh, they must have been crazy. They thought, like, you know, the gods did this, or these crazy you know, singing statues were dancing around everywhere, but, you know, might have actually been true and had simple explanations like this. Okay, I knew this was going to happen, but there's just so much to talk about done in Luxor that after covering just these sites on the western bank of the Nile, we're already at the limit for how long I like to go on in a single episode, maybe a little bit more. So we're going to break here and pick up 
in a part two on Luxor in the next episode, which will be episode number nine. So much more good stuff to share with you and talk about because Luxor is such a mind-blowing place. And one of the most mind-blowing sights in Luxor is what's coming up next when we head over to the Eastern Bank and continue on. And I'll also go on to tell you about some Luxor-specific scams to watch out for and talk about a few of the things happening in the news in Egypt that you should be aware of as well. So be sure to join me in the next episode of the Egypt Travel Blog Podcast, which is going to be Episode 9, Luxor Part 2, and we'll keep the party going. All right. Ciao, Habibis. Ciao, Habibis.